Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of our weekly Exploring the Parsha class with Rabbi Rebecca Schatz and Rabbi Matt Shapiro. Shabbat shalom, everyone. It's lovely to see you. We are going to look at Parshat Re'eh, which is really exciting. We are going uh, to look at... Thank you, Rabbi Shapiro. That was very good. Um, you are wonderful. Um, so, <laughs> so Rabbi Shapiro is going to start us off. Um, we are looking at really just one verse, but we're going to kind of give you the other verses um, as context so that you can kind of see a little bit of where the verse particularly comes from. Um, we're going to obviously give you context of the whole Parsha, but when we start talking about the verses, uh, we're going to try a little bit of a new format that we're going to really focus like commentaries wise on one verse, but then we, we're going to read the other verses with you. Um, and if you want to ask Kushiot about them, you're more than welcome to, uh, to, to get a little bit of where our particular verse is coming from and where it's going to go. So. I'll turn it over to Rabbi Matthew Shapiro. Rabbi Schatz. Uh huh. Why is Connecticut spelled Connecticut? Okay. Very good. You got it in. Okay, moving on. I, but it is also an actual question. <laughs> and you think I know? <laughs> you know lots of things that I don't know. All right. For all of our listeners in Connecticut out there, I would love to hear more about the etymology of your statement. Um, okay. Rabbi Schatz was very excited about this, this verse today. So she's going to be telling us all about it. Rabbi Schatz? I do, I do find this verse fascinating, yes. All right. Rabbi, Rabbi Schatz is running point on today's, uh, today's teaching. Did that work? Ugh, the internet is not fantastic. Is this working? Not yet. Not yet. Do you want? Oh, now it is. Now it is. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, so we are going to pick up in chapter twelve of Dvarim, um, a, a pretty wide ranging parsha. I'd say we talk about uh, we we hear about holidays. We get sort of Kashrut two point Like there's there's a lot of different uh, uh, pieces. Um, in the You're past. starting from the end and going to the beginning. It's it's uh, I'm going back to the future, mm-hmm. Marty. Um, so I don't know what, but I don't think there's like context at the beginning of the parsha. There's a there's a famous piece at the very beginning of the parsha where God says, "Before I said before you today, blessing and curse," which some of you might have might have heard before. Um, and the the piece that we'll be focusing in on today, I would say, is a, of a larger contextual framing that we've seen woven in and out of our exploration of Dvarim to this point, which is sort of Moses charging the people with instructions like what they should, or in case we'll be looking at, should not, definitely should not, totally magodally should not uh, do when he is gone. Yes, Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. I just want to add, um, for those of you who didn't study in Midrash, with me yesterday. I wasn't invited. You were not invited, though. You I'm, made never your, invi- I, I'm never invited. You made your presence known, though, as you do every week. Um, 
So we, one of the things that we looked at that I find really interesting about this Parsha, and actually Leah Wax is going to be talking about this tomorrow in her drosh um, at her bat mitzvah, is this moment where God is talking about poor people on the face of the world. Um, and it starts off with God saying there will never be poor people. Right, and then right. three verses later, it's maybe there will be poor people. And so this is probably what you should do if there are. And then three verses after that, it says there are definitely going to be poor people. Now, here's the commandment to take care of those poor people. So I just wanted to point out that that's another um, another big piece of this week's Parsha that happens uh, actually a little bit after the part that we're going to look at today. But it, to me, it's just fascinating that God changes God's mind uh, in the span of about 11 verses. There shall be no needy. Right. That comes okay. from the week's Parsha. Right. Uh, a book by Rabbi Jill Jacobs, who's done a lot of work in uh, a variety of social justice fields uh, uh, c- currently working. The way I've heard that explained is neither here nor there, but is that there, there is an ideal expressed and there's a recognition yeah. of the reality of the situation. And then the measures that are given in the Parsha, uh, which also takes up a good chunk of the Parsha this week, are like how to combat the reality right. on the ground to work closer towards the ideal that there, that there shouldn't be needy people in the world, which, yeah. which I appreciate as like a. It's like how you do the end of the, of your Kadama zone, right? The ideal that you won't see a, a needy person in your land, right? Some people get, don't sing it at all. Some people sing it and think of it as idealistic. Some people sing it kind of slower so that you really pay attention to those words. Um, anyway, I just want to, I think that's a fascinating part of this Parsha also. So, I agree. And I like what Joanna offered up as a way to work. A state name in was, which is let's connect. I cut some verses from this week's Parsha for us to look at. Get it? Get it, Rabbi Shatz? I do. State wordplay. Good job. Should we should we start having a weekly state that we do puns with as part of our Parsha class to close things out strong? No. Looks like an enthusiastic yes. <laughs> okay, so we're picking things up. Uh, beginning of chapter 12, like I was saying before, I was so politely interrupted, uh, very much of a piece um, in the larger Deuteronomic goal of offering the, this charge to the people and specifically in relationship to uh, what other nations are doing uh, regarding idolatry. We're talking about idolatry today. Let it be said, Rabbi Rebecca Schatz wanted to talk about idolatry. Um, beginning, uh, usually my thing, uh, beginning of chapter 12, uh, these are the laws and rules. Again, we see this framing of Chukim Mishpatim uh, that we've seen a few different times already. You must carefully observe in the land that the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess as long as you live on the earth. Pretty standard Deuteronomic framing. Destroy, you must destroy the site, all the sites at which the nations you are to dispossess, dispossess worship their gods, whether on lofty mountains and on hills or under any luxuriant tree not just any tree a luxuriant tree the luxuriant trees would be a great name for a rock band so uh, i just want to point out that in that verse it says can you move up a little yeah and i can even it's zoom good. in which you taught me how to do i did okay it says ebed ta'abdun right so we're seeing again here that um 
that doubling of the same root to show emphasis. And in this particular case, the emphasis is on the word destroy. So not only should you a little bit destroy, but you should really make sure you obliterate completely. So it's not just knock over, you know, the Lego castle that your, that your little brother makes. It's knock over the Lego castle and then hide the Legos, right? It's completely get rid of and destroy all possibility for, um, for rebuilding. And that's important to some of the pieces that I found about the next verse. So I wanted to point that out. Great. Um, and this is the verse that we are going to be focusing in on, which Rabbi, which I still haven't heard from Rabbi Schatz why she's so excited about this verse, but that's what makes this class interesting. We'll, we'll find out. Uh, you should tear down their altars. And you should smash their pillars. You should burn, uh, it said, put their sacred post to the fire. And Asherah was actually like literally a, a, a tree that was worshipped, but we'll go with that. Put their mm-hmm. sa- burn their sacred posts. Uh, and you should cut down the images of their gods. You should obliterate their name, mean Hamakom Hahu, from that place. Um. I'll continue with the next two verses because Rabbi Schatz told me to. Uh, <laughs> don't do that to the Lord your God. Uh, verse five, but look only to the site that Lord your God will choose amidst all your tribes as his habitation to establish his name there. And you should go there. Uh, Rabbi Schatz, you're in charge. Yeah. Okay. Um Wait, I'm in. Tr- oh, because you want me to do Kushio? <laughs> yeah, or anything you want to add? You're you're running, um, you're running the show. I'm just glad that I I'm got here for fun. Yeah, as per usual. I just um, I just, I'm just glad that I told you to do something, and you were just like, I have no idea why. I'll just I'll do it. Sure. Um, I'll try that with other things in life. So I'm a very good listener. Yeah. So you have, you are. Um, I think that, that these verses, I'm not going to tell you why I think they're interesting because I, I don't want to, um, bleed into your cushiote or, or cloud that which you might be thinking is interesting. Um, so I'll share that afterwards. But the one thing that I want you to see in these verses and the reason that I had Rabbi Shapiro read all four is because they really do, um, you did a great job zooming in. Do you mind just zooming out a little bit so we can see all four verses at once? There is just no pleasing sound telling <laughs> Uh, maybe one more. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you. And then just scroll. Yeah. Great. Uh, yeah. Stop. Freeze. No, 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 no. Mm. Okay. Wait. Okay. Just stop. You're doing great. Just, okay. Fantastic. Um, that they, they really have to play off of one another. So in the, in verse two, right, we're talking about the, um, the, the sites where, where we might come across these, this idolatry, these other worshiped gods. Um, but the tree piece is actually really interesting because as Rabbi Shapiro mentioned, this idea of the Asherah, has anybody heard another translation for what Asherah is? Maybe only rabbinical students have to read these books, but do you know what I'm talking about, Rabbi Shapiro? Oh yeah, Joanna. Wasn't Asherah also like a fertility goddess? Yes. Very good. 
So Ashera was also, I had to read a book on it. That's why I mentioned the book um, in Dr. Zioni's Evitz class. I mean, I probably um, had to read a book on it too. But. Yeah, Tal just wrote such a Baruch Link question. It really is. Um, I probably had to read it for his class too. But um, the, the Ashera was not just a, like a random tree in the forest, but was also a type of fertility god or type of god that was seen as kind of totem pole like like in in structure um and and so it was seen as uh as also tree like right given given the shape of kind of what a totem pole looks like if you can picture one anyway so that plays into the third verse here which is what we're really focusing on but then the last two verses are basically God saying, okay, so I'm telling you to destroy these things because I want to make sure that anything you've seen, you're not going to practice based on any of that. So it's not just that the destroying has to happen, but you also kind of have to like wipe your memory. doesn't say that here, but you have to wipe your memory of anything that you saw in terms of worship to make sure you don't do that as well. So it's not just good enough to not use their altars or use their fertility gods, but you have to also make sure that your practices are according to that which God has told you to do, not what you might have seen. So I just want to clarify that. We don't need to focus on these um, these other verses, but I wanted to just clarify why I had Rabbi Shapiro read them. So we're going to focus in on verse 3. Rabbi Shapiro, you can zoom in again on verse 3 um, because you're so proficient at it. Great. Yes, you are. Okay. Can you zoom out a little? Okay. Fantastic. If you can now <laughs> get us back to the verse. Scroll. Okay. Any kushiot? Yeah, Elon. So this goes back to something that we discussed a couple of weeks ago. If I were an extreme right-wing um, religious Zionist, I would read these paragraph, uh, these verses and say, oh, clearly the intention is that we should blow up the Dome of the Rock and replace it with um, the uh, Beit HaMikdash, right? And and this couldn't be more clear. Right? It's not an interpretation. There's no way you can interpret this other than that, right? There's no, it's not ambiguous. It's like tear down. If you're going to build something, you got to tear down any uh, any remnants of, of, of the uh, paganist uh, thing that was there beforehand. So I'm curious, clearly the rabbis uh, countered that somewhere. So I guess my question is how, what did they say to, to argue what is very clear from the words? They must've come up with some uh, explanation. Great. Um, I'm part of what you are expressing as interest it co- goes into what my interest is around this around this verse so i'm not going to actually respond too much to what you're saying um except for to say that i wish our rabbi said more um and be- because as you are pointing out it's not happening right it's not happening that we are going into places and and tearing things down. Your your example of Israel was very interesting, and we will get to a source of mine, I think, later that talks about how it, the land of Israel is actually um, trickier when it comes to this piece of Torah, right? Like not not um, tearing down the church at the other end of my street, 
might be an easier thing in America to wrap your head around than something on the land of Israel. So we'll get to that a little bit later. But I wish the rabbi said more. I wish there was more um, angst around this verse and uh, explanation. And even more so on the Temple Mount. Yes, Israel yeah. Generally, yeah. on the Temple yeah. Mount specifically. 100%. 100%. Uh, Joanna. So building upon a little bit about what um, Ilan said, um, and also where my mind immediately went was to the verse that we looked at in Parshat Vatchanan, where we were told that um, it, either the reason or at least one of the reasons for observing the mitzvot is if we do it right, the nations of the world around us will look upon us favorably. Yeah. So there seems to be some concern with having good relations with the nations around us. And this kind of completely obliterates that. Yeah. So, um, so that I find, you know, sort of kind of alarming and like, you know, a bit alarmist what this is telling us in terms of what sort of relationship we build with others who are different from us. Um, and the other thing you were talking about before was um, how the verses build one upon the other. Yeah. And I almost want to say that like so much so in a certain sense that like you could read verse two and then jump to verse five and you would have almost all the information, get rid of the, all the other gods and all the other places and worship God in this place. Yeah. So what is it that three and four are adding to the conversation? Great. Great. Wonderful. Uh, Denise. Well, then, Denise, uh, I want to appreciate, Joanna, that you are able to remember what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. So right <laughs> you are you 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 get an A plus in exploring the Parsha. And that's right, Rabbi Schatz. Yeah. A plus. Sure. Okay. Yeah. A plus. Everyone can have an A plus. Great. Can I have an A plus? Of course. Okay, Denise. Okay, so when we were reading it before the Crucio came up, it seemed to me that this was instructions for when we go into the land kind of part of the conquest. I didn't take it as you should do this forever because it's specifically talking about a specific God, the Asherah, and the trees, and this and that. And that doesn't apply beyond that, and it makes sense in a conquest mentality that that would be part of what you're doing. Sure. Um, and, like, when I was a kid in Yavne, people asked, like, why don't we, you know, we have Israel, why don't we have the Mesimikdash? And it was, like, because the answer they gave us was because you don't, you don't create bloodshed and war and killing in order for the base mikdash to come about, that needs to come about in a godly way, and that's it. And we're going to wait till that happens. Um, so that was from that part. But then my, the question that I had also is, if this is like in a context of conquering the land, do we have any records of them actually doing this, like in the in the early books, you know, that describe conquering the land, like in in Yeshua and Shoftim? Does it talk yeah. about doing that? I don't know if Rabbi Shapiro has any like detailed recollection of of those books in terms of 
if he can point out like specific stories of where this might have happened. There definitely were conquests. I mean, even like later on Deuteronomy, right? There are definitely are conquests where we're wiping out groups of people um, and settlements where people were living just to kind of get through. Um, so I don't remember specifically if there's recognition of doing that around holy sites, right, or places of worship, but but definitely just in terms of that conquest piece that you mentioned. And before Rabbi Shapiro um, tells me all about Yahushua, uh, the I do think that um, the the answer that you were given in school is such a beautiful one, and I hope it's true, right? I hope that <laughs> that that's a, a real answer around. The reason we don't have the Beit Hamikdash yet isn't because we're not willing to raise the the Temple Mount, but because by doing that, it would cause obviously uh, tons of destruction and and bloodshed and and really just moral destruction also in terms of a people and their place of worship. Um, and that's not the way that we should want to build our holy structure. So I love that answer. I, I would love to know if that answer comes from something or if that's just like common sense, because I love that as an answer. Um, but Rabbi Shapiro, you were going to say something and then we can move on. I, I, w- I wish I knew Naveem more comprehensively than I did. So I, I like can't. No one tell Rabbi Dr. Avi Havivi that Rabbi Shapiro and I both said this. I mean, hey, go ahead. Tell Rabbi Dr. Avi. Rabbi Dr. Avi Havivi would then probably use it as an opportunity to say, okay, great. Let's get back to work. Um, Take my test again. Take my test again. Oh, man, that test. Jeez, Lou. Was it the hardest test you had in rabbinical school? Yes, of course. That was brutal. Okay, go ahead. Rabbi Dr. Avi Khabibi covers all of Nevi'im and Ketuvim in one semester. Now, in case you don't know Tanakh off the top of your head, that's two-thirds of the Bible, and it's a lot. Um which is fascinating curricularly as well. Anyway. <laughs> and um, you both learned it so well. And we both learned it so well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know a chapter and verse. I did see a specific verse cited in Safaria from, from Malachim Bet from, from Second Kings in terms of like these reforms being implemented mm-hmm. in the context of a narrative that is like, the following things are happening and, and and now it's being like overturned. And and mm-hmm. you don't have to know Machim chapter and verse to know that even after the people are in the land, there are good kings and not so good kings, right? And there are times when the people are more faithful to a specific type of worship and less so. And just to remind everyone with a larger piece of context that we we spoke about at the very beginning when we were talking about Dvarim, the sense is that this book is likely something that showed up later on, right? If we're being at all realistic about like a documentary hypothesis, it is likely that this book, or at least most of it, showed up later on with a very specific set of goals in terms of what it would accomplish for the Israelite people and, and with anything, right. You, you don't have a verse unless you're, you're trying to like, I, I, I won't say to like Jonah and Aliyah stop hitting each other. If, if they're not hitting each other, right. I will say that if they are actively hitting each other. So this verse wouldn't be in here 
unless this stuff was happening in around, right? You wouldn't, you wouldn't be saying don't engage in idolatry if everybody's going to temple three times a year, right? So, so I think contextually in terms of having a broader sense of what's happening in the land around the time that this showed up, I just think that that's, that's a piece to toss out there as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, Renee and then Tybal, and then we'll look at some commentaries. <clears throat> well, I was just wondering if the connection, if somehow he thought that, uh, that that we needed to tear down, that we needed to physically get rid of the stuff in order for our minds to be more accepting of listening to his rules and yes. laws. Definitely. And there are a few commentaries. I think Rashi is one of them. Um, you know, that guy. Uh, there are a few commentaries that very specifically say that, right? That this, this had very little to do with us wanting to destroy on behalf of kind of moving a people out of our way, but rather that we wanted to make sure that our path was the one that was in front of us, that we were able to, to focus in as opposed to assimilate uh, to the, to the different cultures and religions and practices that were around us a hundred percent. And it doesn't seem also, it seems like it was mostly directed just at Moshe Rabbeinu rather than the, the Jewish people at large, like in some other passages that we learned yesterday and in the past. Um, so it's all in the plural. So my guess is that it was very specific to, to like Moshe having the people do it, but still something that the people were doing as part of, <laughs> I'm going to just keep using this word as part of their conquest forward towards the land. Um, and then once in the land, as Denise pointed out to us, right? That this was something that everyone kind of had to take on or at least make sure that they weren't around. Um, yeah. Roshri, were you going to say something? I felt like you... Oh, no. Okay. Tybal. Um, So if it's okay, first, it's not substantive. I just want to comment on getting to know teachers and the example you gave uh, with three younger brothers and what you thought about doing to their Legos. Oh. <laughs> anyway, I just thought that was interesting. I thought, <laughs> oh, look what one learns about the examples that come to mind. You yes. know, they have, have Legos. Lots- I have lots of brothers and lots of young Legos. boy cousins. Yeah. <laughs> so. Okay. Um, so, but we also have a ton of Legos over at our place too. If anybody needs any Legos, any Legos, okay. I step on um, Legos all the time, and it is one of my least favorite things about parenting. Um. Well, especially barefoot. Okay. Um, it hurts and so much. I have some water company construction outside my kitchen so I couldn't hear all of this if somebody already said this please stop me but I always get interested in the obliterating the memory part Mm. because the not just this but you know the the Amalekites and the this and that the tension between really obliterating it which means it's if it's so obliterated a similar situation or something could come back and no one would understand versus how you remember to obliterate, which means you're not really obliterating. And this is one more of those. Yeah. So I was the one who brought up the memory piece. I, it doesn't actually say that here, but you're right that there is something, you know, a, a, something akin to the Amalekites in that we not only wanted to destroy them, but also the memory of them. And it seems to be here based on if we're reading commentaries into the Torah, uh, it seems to be that part of the, the, uh, destruction of these 
sacred spaces is so that we also don't think to practice like them. And so in a certain way, that is also memory, right? Making sure that we do not assimilate to practice like them. Um, and, and if you've been around that type of practice and you're trying to create your own, then, then that, um, comes up. It doesn't actually say that in the text. That was just something that I was adding before, but, um, but it's a very interesting connection. I want to just chime in on, on a specific phrase in here that I, I found a little bit about Rabbi Schatz. I don't know if you found more. I don't know if this is what caught you. I, I still haven't heard what you find interesting. About I know. I haven't. I'm very it. eager to, to hear. I, I just want to name this specific phrase that you bought to Shmam, which we haven't like really named all that much. Because it's one thing to be destroying the the physical manifestations of the idolatry. And I, I also think it's very interesting, this verse, that it said you should obliterate their name from that place. Yeah, so yeah. Different, a, a, of a different category. And, and I would also say like a different level of erasure that, yeah. that I think is interesting. I don't know, mm-hmm. Ryan, if that's what you were going to say. I'm sorry if I, sorry, if, sorry if I jumped on you there, but uh, it, it, it popped up and no one said it yet. Ryan, over to you. Uh, no, that was that isn't what I was going to say. Although I was going to pick up on something you said earlier, Rabbi Shapiro, about the documentary hypothesis and the uh, historical context for all this. So, from from what I've read as in my my layperson understanding of this, is the idea is that much of Deuteronomy was written uh, during the time of King Josiah. Um, so, post the Assyrian conquest, um, when Josiah in particular is living in this fear that with all the other tribes having been conquered, his tribe is next. And I kind of wonder if how much of this is written out of that fear that his people are so fractured in their their practices and their power is so fractured and not consolidated that they they are next if they don't if they don't consolidate. Yeah, absolutely. Consolidation of worship, centralization of worship is such a big theme in Dvarim in a way that it isn't in the previous four books, right? And and that that makes much more sense in historical context, um, which is then also very fascinating, like very interesting after the destruction of the second temple when we need to like re- re- rework everything all over again. Um, but, but yeah, absolutely. I think the, the motivation of trying to centralize and refocus, and I think there is some, some real anxiety, right? It's, it's depicted as Moshe's anxiety right? About what will happen to the people after he's gone. But I think in terms of the, the historical context, I, I, I think you're, I think you're, you're right on with that assessment. Elon, Joanna. Yeah. Um, there's, there's no attempt in uh, any of these verses to differentiate between righteous and unrighteous peoples, right? So there, there's, I mean, I think we would like to read into that well, no, this is really only for the bad guys, but but actually, no, it doesn't say. And uh, if you come upon a peaceful people, even if their practices differ from what you're comfortable with, you you should leave them alone. And it's kind of like, um, it 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 it's kind of like you know, whoever differs with you, just it, it, from a religious perspective, you should go and and commit this destruction. And I suspect that throughout history, forgetting about it in modern day as a justification for blowing up the Temple Mount, I suspect that, that these verses created an animosity towards Jews in uh, both European and uh, uh, Arab countries were saying, 
yeah, sure, they claim to try to live in peace, but look at this document. This is their document that they read, and it's saying that their goal is to destroy us. So, you know, so let, you know, kind of let's beat them to the punch. Yeah, I <laughs> I think that's part of the, well, I, I don't know if it's part of the issue or part of the, um part of the confusion, right? I think that, that because there's ambiguity around, around who it is that we're dealing with and doing this, it makes it that much more extreme because as you're, as you said at the beginning of your statement, like it could be any, could be anybody. It could be really great people who are just practicing in a very different way, which is very different than coming across someone who's trying to do away with your beliefs and getting in your way of your beliefs and therefore getting destroying them, though still not, you know, not, not the Rebecca Schatz favorite, but, but could be something that is a little bit more um, conceivable uh, back in Torah time. So it, it definitely add the ambiguity adds to the challenge and, and a little bit of the frustration around like, what does this mean? And who is this being done to? I don't know if Rabbi Shapiro has anything to add to that. No, uh, no. I still okay. want to hear what you find interesting about this. Okay, I'm, I'm going to get there. I'm going to get there. I'm waiting to hear from the students first. Okay, Joanna and then Tybal and then I'll share. I'm <laughs> eager to learn from you, Rabbi Shah. Thank you. That's lovely. All right. So two things. I also, like Rabbi Shapiro, had this vague memory of like in the Book of Kings somewhere, it talks about cutting down the Asherot. And as we've been talking, I managed to find the verse. It's Second Kings. Um chapter 23, verse 14. And what's very interesting in light of what Ryan said is that it was in fact King Josiah when he was trying to clean things up who did that. And the language there almost exactly parallels this verse about smashing down the pillars and the sacred posts. So that only speaks to exactly what you were saying, Rabbi Shapiro, about this was really happening. And right in the time of Josiah, you know, if that's when Deuteronomy came together, that's why we see such strong language here. Um, The other thing I just wanted to quickly comment on about the idea of obliterating the name, feeling and seeming different, the structure of the verse, I think, gives us that also for people who know um, the Torah reading notes. If you look under the word tegadeun, that word has like a funny wishbone under it shape, which is which always signifies in a sentence where the major break in the sentence is. So it's divided the sentence in two. So four things that we are supposed to do are smushed together in the first part of the sentence. And the whole second half of the sentence is devoted solely to the topic of obliterating the name, which seems to really emphasize that or distinguish that from the other types of things we're supposed to do to the other nations. Interesting. Rick Muller would really love that. He would love the, uh, the trope play into, into the understanding of the verse. Great. Uh, Tybal. Um, I wanted to actually uh, counter Elon a little bit to say that given this is holy canon to Muslims too, and they reread, for example, they think, um, it was the binding of Ishmael, not the binding of Isaac. I think that's a mainstream interpretation. To me, it seems just as likely 
as that one could say Christians too. Whoever takes this as holy text would be more likely in terms of supersessionism to see it speaking to them. Oh, it's our text now more than their text. This is what we are told to do. Then the whole, oh, the Jews are being told to do this. We need to defend. Just. Ilan, do you want to respond? Yeah, I agree. There's no doubt that 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 uh, Christians and Muslims also use texts to justify violence in, uh, in in their own history. Um, but that doesn't make it less applicable to us. I I agree. It is applicable to to the other peoples of the book as well. <clears throat> okay, Rabbi Shapiro, did you want to know why I find this interesting? Oh, you did. Okay, I just I couldn't remember. Um, Can I just jump in for one second? Yeah. Um, I just. I am to- never going to know. We're going to get to eleven fifty nine, and Rabbi Schatz is going to end the Zoom, and I'm never. She's going to delete my number from her phone, and I'm never going to find out. Sounds very. Yeah, well, likely. this is why I asked the question about: Is there a record of us doing these things in Yeshua and Shoftim? Yeah, because from everything I know of Jewish history. We don't do this. Right. We don't do this. We didn't do this to Roman ruins and Greek ruins all over Israel. We didn't do this to churches all over Europe. We don't do this to mosques. Christianity used to do it a lot, and Islam did it throughout their history and continues to do it. So, you know, just to have all the facts out there, I don't think you can equate our behavior in that area with other groups. Sure. I think that I think it's hard to generalize <laughs> um, for like for any group of people, right? Yeah, but that's been, not a it's not a general like oh I feel this. This is like it just didn't happen. It's there. It tells us to do it, but we didn't do it. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I think what I mean by generalization is that I think that some people would equate like some of what we are doing, or I shouldn't say what we are doing. What has been done in certain places where Jews have come to. To, to put their roots down, right, to, to make their own communities, that sometimes, even if it wasn't like a church or a mosque or, you know, a Buddhist temple or anything, that in destroying just like general location, right, could be, could equate to this. So I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just saying, I think that when we yeah, talk about- they, I'm just saying because it's not equate because, you know, ISIS took out Palmyra, which had been there for thousands of years, and the Taliban blew up the Buddhist statues in Dawang, and on and on and on and on. And we didn't do those things. Do we move into neighborhoods and take over a restaurant or the block change? Yeah, but that's not the same thing as obliterate their place of worship. Yeah. Okay. I, um, I'm, I'm going to, <laughs> Rabbi Shapiro just said, are you going to teach today or what? Yeah, I'm going to get there. Um, so why did I find this interesting? I find this really interesting, um, and again, similar to what Elon said in, in his first comment, I find this very interesting. There are many pieces of Torah that I don't agree with, um, for sure, but this verse in particular makes me very uncomfortable living in the 21st century, uh, wanting to to learn from people around me, not just Jews, wanting to have relationship with people around me, not just Jews. And wanting to also be able to adapt, not necessarily assimilate, but adapt beautiful traditions and culture and ritual that doesn't come from our own 
uh, insular Jewish community, but comes from the outside. And if you get rid of, if you get rid of communities and you get rid of their spiritual spaces, you might not be able to take part in any of those things. You might not be able to have those interfaith, intercultural relationships that would, as I see it in my life, enhance my own religion and my own um, spiritual kind of grounding in Judaism for me. It's not, it's not Judaism for every human. Um, but that, that to me is very fascinating when it comes to this verse, because I wonder what the world would have been like had, and we've talked about this now a little bit, had it looked more like a world where Jews, whether it means anywhere or just in Israel, went around going with this verse, right? Went around actually destroying these kinds of places. And what would our tradition look like? What would our religion look like um, if we had obliterated any uh any religion in our midst to to learn from and to to expose ourselves to. So that's what I find so interesting. Rabbi Shapiro, what is that smirk on your face? <laughs> you have to unmute yourself if you're going to talk, though. I, I, I uh, of course, agree with you. It's, it's interesting to me that you're using this verse specifically as a jumping off point to that. I mean, I, I put this in, Paula put in the chat, um, I think a, a lovely and poignant point uh, saying how we like, meditation practices we incorporate practices but not necessarily the theology although some right, right. tell you it's not a theology right? right depending on the buddhist that you talk to it, it it's dafka not about god it's a, it's more philosophical right but um and paul said i want to use and access the practices but not destroy them and right Rabbi Schatz, i think you're you're saying something very similar yeah um I put, I put it in the chat, but I'll say it out loud. I, there, there are a lot of explorations about what idolatry currently is and isn't, right? And like anything in our tradition, there, there's plenty of different understand. Like, is Christianity, is Islam, is Buddhism, right? What is actually idolatry in our current, more polyglot cultural context in terms of the different religions that we come into contact with, the most common answer that I see and relating it back to this verse is as long as you are not bowing down to an idol, it's not something that you need to uproot in the same kind of way. Like, like you still probably like, if you're going to call yourself a mitzvah observant Jew, you're probably still not going to go to like church every Sunday necessarily, but that, that you can still draw from religious traditions and learn from what they might have to offer without it being definitionally idolatry. Right. And not everyone, I don't think not everyone would agree with that, but, but hold, on, hold, on, hold, 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 hold on. It's interesting to me that, that you pick up on this verse for that riff, because this verse is saying very specifically when there are physical things, take them down. Right. Like when, the, and, and I understand it is, it is sweet. It, it feels sweeping in terms of the prohibitions because it like lists things out, but each, at least of the four, as we hit the Anachtas, Joanna, pointed out so so beautifully earlier right each of those four things are referring to like concrete things you should take down that isn't to say that there aren't other verses in the Torah that are quite xenophobic there certainly are um but and and again cultural context might make sense but i i think it's interesting that like you're you're picking this verse for for that riff specifically i do want to hear what bonnie says but i just want to i want to respond for a second i think that 
and maybe this is semantics and maybe this is a little bit of chicken or egg, uh, or maybe it's both. I, I think that first of all, a lot of the commentators don't agree with, with your statement of you only get rid of something if you're bowing to it, right? A lot of them talk about how specific to the, to the tree idea that you have to go all the way down to the roots, right? Like you have to get rid of something. So it's completely gone. Yes, go ahead. Yes, but but I'm saying like I'm I'm referring to like the general physical context. No, no, I know. Like, oh, you're oh you're you're using that as a. I, I'm just saying I think that it's it's coming from something a little bit more no pun intended rooted right something a little bit more that's not it's not just oh you see a crucifix because that's iconography and now you have to do away with it only if you believe in the thing that the that the crucifix stands for. I think what this is saying, and maybe I'm wrong, but I think that what this verse is saying is if if there is a type of iconography in your midst, right, in your path towards spiritual existence and practice, that if it's going to be distracting to you in terms of what your practice should be, then you should get rid of it. Not necessarily just because not necessarily, sorry, after you've used it, but even maybe before. And again, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm reading into that, but that's what I think. The, the other piece is when it comes to, and I'm sorry that I didn't remember to say this beforehand. When it comes to religions that we have, that we Jews have, um, been around spiritually, the Muslims are actually the least problematic because the thing that's the most problematic, and this is in Halakha and in the Talmud, specifically in uh, Masechet Avodah Zarah, it's talking most about iconography. It's talking most about something that you would see, which Muslims do not have, something that you would see that you would then pray to, right? Something that is not just not just like the use of a sidur or in Islam, a rug or something that would, that would allow you to further your practice, but rather a focal point, um, or an idol, if we're going to go back to Torah language. And I think that that is, that is seen still as something that, that is problematic for some Jews. Again, we're not going around destroying it, but I think that just knowing what it is, at least to me, adds to my own understanding of my own religion because I know how other people practice theirs. And if that didn't exist, I don't know that I would have that breadth of knowledge or interest. Bonnie. Okay. Well, I just had a thought that we know archaeologically that we have found lots of idols and things all the way through um, the land of Israel. Yeah. Is it perhaps possible that this text was written at a time when these places were actually being utilized by the Israelites and were not just destroying the other people's places of worship, but actually the places that the Jews were worshiping at. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I don't know if Rabbi Shavir agrees, but I I definitely think that that was part of the the impetus for this um, in terms of their own spiritual location and use uh, and just general real estate right of of needing place to to pray and to have to have that um that location do you disagree agree rabbi shapiro 
I mean, I think the assessment is right. I mean, there, there's, I feel there's great stuff happening in the chat today. And I feel like if, assuming people still listen to this podcast, which I don't think anyone does except for people in Connecticut. Um, maybe they do. one guy in Connecticut that will listen. One guy in Connecticut. Yeah. yeah. Rabbi Adam Klickfeld on his vacation is definitely like, let me dial up this whole exploring the Parsha podcast and What's see what those maniacs I left in charge are up to. He's just going to um, make sure that we're doing our jobs. He's going to listen to make sure that we're actually working. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Um, there's some really interesting... If this is... If this is the metric that we're going on, yeah. Rabbi Schatz and I heading into our contract here, I think, are in, are in big trouble. Uh, anyway, um, there, there's some really interesting stuff happening in the chat um, around the, the the overlap that that Judaism has with other cultures, which, Bonnie, I think you're talking, right? You're, you're talking about that going way back. And I mean, like, a Seder was based on a Roman drinking banquet. Right. Like like all all of that kind of stuff. There's a lot of synchronistic uh, syncretic pieces in terms of how Judaism ties in, of course, with the cultures around it. And that's part of the richness of our tradition is that since we've been a diasporic people for so long, we have all of these really wonderful foods and melodies and rituals and all of that stuff that has been combined and woven together with the cultures that we've been a part of and that make up the tapestry that is the Jewish people. I think that's awesome. I think that's great. And and I think part of what we're talking about today, typo, syncretism, that's how we get even better food. Yeah. Uh, you and I, oh, you typed even before I said it. There you go. Awesome. Um, uh, I'll, I'll, Paul, you said, I don't think anyone worries that you're working. I'm assuming that's not a typo. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'm going to say, th- I'm going to say three things. One of which is just very briefly going to, going to touch on, on the, the piece that I wanted to make sure to share. One is that I think there is, there has always been this push pull in our tradition in terms of how, how, how big the tent can be and how forgiving we can be in terms of a sense of what idolatry is or isn't. Mm-hmm. And Ryan, per your comment earlier, I think this text germinated from a time where there was a lot of worry and a population where there was a lot of worry about how we really need to batten down the spiritual hatches, uh, which would also make a great name for a rock band. It's two today. Uh, batten down the spiritual hatches and say, no, 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 we really need to like lock in and 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 keep it um, very insular if we're going to make it through this moment in time. And there are times when we are broader in that, and times when when we are less so. And at any given point in time, there are also times like there, there's also a spectrum of understanding within the Jewish people about kind of how 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 broad our understanding of other cultures can be versus how narrow it can be in terms of what we might learn from them. And I think that that's like an ongoing spectrum and an ongoing back and forth. What it makes me think of in, in a contemporary context is there's um, in the recovery community, particularly amongst observant Jews, some t- uh, most AA meetings, most 12-step meetings happen in churches. And sometimes observant Jews will be very, very worried about that because they think, oh my God, I can't go into a church. Right. I can't go into a church because that's that's idolatry. That's a vote that That's something that's that's forbidden. And it has taken some time and it's still taking work to sort of say, like, 
you like go to the <laughs> go to the meeting. Like you need the meeting. The meeting is important. It might save your life. That takes priority. Um, so it's just interesting to me because that's like a very practical contemporary example of where where some of this push pull um, shows up. It, it ties in in terms of like the recovery thinking uh, for me um, in a, a, a context of another text that I saw that I'll, that I'll just share. And then Joanne, I saw your hand and then Rabbi Schatz will masterfully wrap this all up for us. Um, that was talking about like, why, why is it that you destroy the trees and the stones? What do the trees and stones do? They didn't do, they didn't do anything. <laughs> It's just trees and stones. I knew you were going to bring worshipped in ancient times. I, I read this. I read this text, and I was like, "Oh, for sure, I don't need to even put it on my source sheet." Rabbi Shapiro will share this, so I'm glad. How that did I- you? Know, how did you know, Rabbi Shatz? It's, it's a very Shapiro text. Anyway, continue. Very Shapiro. Oh, I would love to see a compilation of Shapiro texts. That sounds terrifying. Um, and Denise, to your point, like, yeah, they were worshipped, but like, wouldn't the issue then be the people, not the objects? Right, like, like why that? And like, of course, no, you know, because even today, no, yeah, I, even today, I know. Like, Denise, the let me get American... to the let me get to the punchline. Of course, okay, like, sorry, I, I thought that was the punchline. Sorry, <laughs> yeah, the, the the punchline is is that it's it's basically like a kalva homer, essentially, right? Or it's it's like building from how do they say from building from a minor to major, right? That like you start there and you extrapolate outwards. And the, the context that, that is given, which is a verse I'm sure many of you know, which is that you shouldn't put a stumbling block before the blind, right? That you, sh- you shouldn't have those objects even there, lest someone sort of like see the tree and say, oh my God, Asherah, and like start bowing down and worshiping the tree, right? That, that, that you should be so careful so that there shouldn't be a stumbling block before the blind. And if this is a people that's moving into the land or probably more historically accurate, a people that's already in the land where there are these things, you need to make sure to bring in another concept, build a fence around the Torah as it were and obliterate them completely so that people don't feel tempted to do this thing, which again, if the verse is here, they're doing. The verse wouldn't be in there if people weren't doing it. And there's, there's real concern that, that this is something that's going to happen. What it, what it made me think of is, for example, like when people would move into Vechuva and would get their cell phones back, sometimes we would literally sit with people as they would like delete their drug dealer's phone number and like block the, like block the number and delete it from their contacts, right? Like they weren't calling them. They weren't texting them. You need to delete it completely. Because that's the only way you're going to be able to stay on the path that you that you need to be on, right? To be extra, extra careful to make sure that that you stay um, on the path that that's going to lead you to, to health and well-being. It's it's not a perfect parallel, but it's the idea that came to me. And I think when we think about a pretty extreme framing for the level of destruction that we're encouraging folks to make, that that's what it made that's what it made me uh, think of. That's what I got. I th- no, I think Rabbi Schatz knew I was going to say it. So I didn't know you were going to bring in the Beit Shuva piece, but I, I knew that that text was going to speak to you. I, I I think the Beit Shuva piece, first of all, is like a very very powerful image um, of imagining someone get to a place where like obliterating that is really going to save them and um, and make them move on to the next step, right? Like in a in a less dramatic way, it would be getting out of a a terrible relationship and not wanting to be
be in a moment where you might feel like you should reach out to that person again. And so you get rid of their, you know, their number from your phone. And I think that going back to, I forget who mentioned this, maybe it was Elon earlier, um, that in that case, you're, you are looking at good versus evil in a certain way, right? You are looking to move forward in, in the goodness part of your life and doing away with that, which was evil to you. Um, and I think at least the, the, the piece for me that, that is most frustrating and challenging about this verse is that I don't want to imagine that the other peoples or other practices or other um, even idols that were around us were meant for evil, were meant to be bad. I get that they could have been um, a stumbling block for us in terms of becoming a stronger people in our own way. And I, I would hope, and maybe this is, this is bringing too much of modern day into, into Torah, which I'm happy to be challenged on, but I would hope that, that we were and are a strong enough people and nation and tradition, um, that we wouldn't necessarily need to worry about that, which kind of got in our way, um, and that we could learn from it and allow people to feel like, that was their that that was their connection, and so we shouldn't have to destroy it because it might inhibit ours. Uh, and that, to me, is where the challenge comes from in this in this particular verse. I know it's noon, so I'm not going to like share the share the text that I was um, that I was going to share. Though, if you're interested in my text sheet, I can I can send it to you. Um, but one piece that I found very that spoke to me um, was, hold on one second. Let me just find it. Sorry. Uh, here, it's the oral. Joanna, jo- hold on. Can I quickly respond to Joanna's piece? Oh, uh-huh. um, so Joanna, Joanna said in the chat with respect to worshiping only our God, I think there's a read of Tanakh where monotheism evolves. It certainly evolves. I've heard about it framed as um, an evolution from monolatry to monotheism right? That there were practices that were still like very concrete in terms of like the way in which we would worship only one worship, but still having like you referenced Rachel and the idols that were, that there were like physical objects that were part of ancient Israelite worship that over time went away, possibly for this sort of idolatrous confusion. Another great name for a rock band, idolatrous confusion, um, that, that could have been present, but yeah, no doubt that, that there was that evolution over time. Absolutely. The chat has been great today. We should find a way to like attach it to the podcast. Can we do that? Go ahead. How do I do that? Um, So this piece is from the Orachim. Again, I'm not going to read the whole thing because we're going over time, but the Orachim is, uh, is commenting on the piece that you should destroy their name uh, completely, right? Get rid of, get rid of their name, not just that which they have created, but also their name. The question is asked in the Talmud, in Avodah Zarah 45, what these words can possibly add when we have already been told to utterly destroy every every place where idolatry has been performed, right? If you're being told to destroy it, then obviously the name goes with it, right? You destroy a restaurant, then the name of the restaurant is gone because the restaurant is gone. So what's the, what is the reason to also mention this in the Torah? The sages answer that even the roots of the trees, which were symbols of idolatry, have to be uprooted, 
Rabbi Kiva says that the names of such sites have to ch- ha- have to change to something degrading, right? Thus, thus far, the Talmud, perhaps they have a period there, which is not correct. Perhaps the Torah wanted to issue a special warning applicable only to the land of Israel, similar to what Maimonides wrote in the whole. Blah, blah, blah. Okay, so. The fact that, and then he brings it back to, that's why it says, from this specific place, which also goes back to, to Elon's um, Temple Mount example, right? That this is, uh, oh, will I post the link? Yes, uh, give me one second. So this, to me, at least, uh, seems like a very interesting way of understanding that it's not just that which you have experienced kind of above ground, so to speak, but that which was also the intention, the intention behind that which was created. Was it create? And other commentators go into, was it something created for idolatry? No, then you don't have to destroy it. But if it was a tree that was planted for idolatry's sake, then yes, you do have to destroy it. Um, so it really has everything to do with the 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 intention behind why someone wanted that thing for their spiritual practice and i think that 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 that, that for me is very challenging that someone else's spiritual practice can have a lot of intention that doesn't make any sense to me and yet i think other people should be able to also practice their spiritual growth and and connection and whatever way is is important to them and i hope for myself that i'm able to learn from their connection and not assimilate to the way in which they are connecting but can then further my own uh connection and spiritual growth through really being inspired by other people's um attachments to their their religion and their their culture and their traditions. Um, Rabbi Shapiro is laughing, so he's going to finish. I'm not. I'm not laughing. I really got to hop off. Well, I'm, we're going to find a way to continue this uh, next week because I. I think I agree completely, and I think sometimes, as in our current configuration, we tilt so far in that direction that we don't know how to actually hold boundaries for folks, and I think that that can get funky. I don't understand that at all, but great. Great. Cool. Uh, All right. I will see you all soon. Shabbat shalom. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.